episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Before we start on tonight's regular stories, uh, let's check in on a few current stories. First off, sadly, Ingenuity is on hold at the moment. When the GPL team tried to have the rotors spin up, they found that there was a glitch in the software. They're currently working on resetting the helicopter's software and will soon have a new timeline for first flight. Now, as we've talked about many times before, space is hard, but NASA and JPL are old hat at working on such issues and they are very often able to find a solution. Um, I do know that we have had a recent sadness with the uh, mole on the InSight lander, but uh, I think that this is hopefully just a software issue, and they'll be able to reinstall the software on the uh, helicopter, and things will get going again. Um, Again, this is the first time they've tried doing this, and so the fact that they've had some glitches is not unexpected at all. Um, But hopefully within the next week or two, we will actually get that first flight, and um, that will be very exciting. Second of all, the pause in the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is unfortunate, but not anything to panic about. I think it's good that the CDC and FDA requested a pause so that many more, so that more information can be gathered, but the clotting disorder was found in just six cases out of more than 6.8 million people who have received the vaccine, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Now, of course, the fact that this is a one in a million chance is it necessarily something that means that we shouldn't pay attention to it? There are generally some under, there's generally, for instance, some underreporting when a new complication emerges. While these events are very rare, we're recommending a pause in the use of J&J COVID-19 vaccine in order to prepare the healthcare system to recognize and treat patients appropriately and to report severe events they may be seeing, FDA Acting Commissioner Janet Woodcock said at a press conference. And so, uh, with the European AstraZeneca vaccine having a similar issue with a rare blood clotting issue, it makes a lot of sense to be cautious. Both of these vaccines are based on a modified adenovirus, and that is where the scientists are focusing their research. Now, other vaccines have used modified adenoviruses before, and there was no problem. And there are actually some other um, vaccines for COVID-19 that are using that adenovirus, but those are in Russia and China, where the reporting of potential issues is not necessarily the best. Um, it's quite possible that they are not reporting out um, complications. 
And so we don't know if they are just doing better or if we just don't have the information from them. Now, the disorder in Europe has been named vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia, or VITT. And this seems to be caused by an activation of the immune system against a protein called platelet factor 4 that activates platelets, leading to widespread clotting. One thing that the officials note is that if there are signs that someone is suffering from VITT, or associated disorders, that the drug heparin, which is a common treatment for blood clotting, is not recommended, and that this actually might add fuel to the fire of their situation rather than helping. And so that's really good information to have gotten out to people. A larger concern is that these vaccines were considered to be a big part of the plan for vaccinating people in low and medium income countries due to their price, easier storage and transport. They don't need to be at um, as low a temperature as the two-shot vaccines do. And of course, the fact that they only require one shot. And the concern is that many of these countries would be less well-equipped to deal with these sorts of blood clotting disorders. I'm really worried about how we're going to manage this outside wealthy countries that have access to multiple vaccines, said Peter Hotez, a virologist and vaccine researcher at Baylor College of Medicine. A lot of countries are going to be in a very difficult position now. Uh, For full disclosure, he is working on a different vaccine, but I think, obviously, it's a valid concern. Uh, Absolutely. And so, hopefully, more research will be able to allow the vaccines to be rolled out more safely. Uh, Currently, I would recommend that if you're a woman in the U.S., you simply avoid the J&J vaccine if you can. Um, That seems to be the safest course of action at this particular moment uh, is to get one of the two-shot vaccines. Um, And of course, we do want to remember that this is a very rare side effect, which will ultimately not stop the distribution of vaccines, but will lead to warnings for some populations. And so again, Uh, For instance, the AstraZeneca, even though there has now been pauses on it in some regions, there wasn't a general pause caused, um, or called for, I should say, uh, even after about just under 300 cases were uh, reported. And in America, we have currently had six cases Um, It might be a few more at this point, um, because again, uh, with under-reporting due to it just being something that we haven't seen before, Um, but for the most part, the vaccine is extremely safe. No vaccine is 100% efficacious, and no vaccine is 100% safe. No drug is 100% safe. People are, have unique body systems. And every time a drug goes into your system, there is a potential for side effects. And that's true of any kind of drug, any kind of substance you put into your body, whether it's natural or man-made. And so um, 
This isn't some sort of unique thing that we have to be concerned about. And uh, just a heads up on the vaccine in general, researchers are suggesting that a booster shot may be needed in six months to a year after the initial vaccination, and then you may need a yearly shot in the same way as you would need the flu shot. A likely scenario is there will be likely a need for a third dose somewhere between 6 and 12 months, and then from there there would be an annual revaccination, Pfizer CEO Alberta Bo- Albert Borla said. And so that's honestly not unexpected. I think we definitely realized that this was probably not going to be a one or two and done vaccination. Uh, There are definitely other vaccinations that have this issue. The flu, for instance, Um, the flu virus mutates. And so we need to get a new vaccination every year. And as you know, the coronavirus is definitely mutating. And so we will probably have to continue to get booster shots for the um, COVID-19 vaccine. Okay, let's move on now and talk about something absolutely on sort of the opposite end of the spectrum. Let's talk about food coloring. (laughs) Blue is a very rare color in nature, and it's hard to recreate. Currently, the available natural colors don't capture the cyan color or cyan color of many foods and are often hard to mix with other colorants, leading to undesirable results. So the three main natural blue dyes in use currently are derived from spirulina, which is a type of cyanobacteria and often considered to be a superfood. Uh, There are no superfoods, just as an FYI. There are foods that are better for you, but um, I don't think there's anything about spirulina that makes it particularly amazing to uh, add to your diet. Huito, which is a tropical plant related to madder, which is another plant used in producing dyes, and gardenia. And so synthetic blue colorants include the ubiquitous FDNC blue number one for cyan and, or cyan, I don't know why I keep mispronouncing that for cyan. It's just, a, it's just an odd word. And indigotine. FDNC blue number two for indigo. The search for a natural blue dye which can both produce a cyan color and be a true replacement for synthetics, quote, remains an industry-wide challenge and the subject of several research programs worldwide, according to a new research paper published in Science Advances. An international team, including experts from the University of California, Davis, Ohio State, Nagoya University in Japan, and the University of Avignon in France, seem to have made an exciting breakthrough. They have created a natural cyan food coloring made from red cabbage, which can be produced in meaningful quantities and thus may become a substitute for synthetic dyes across a wide range of applications. Red cabbage tends to produce extracts which are, unsurprisingly, reds and purples. 
The plant does produce a blue pigment, blue anthocyanin, but scientists had only been able to extract this molecule in trace amounts. The new research actually converts other red cabbage anthocyanin molecules into a blue hue. They were able to do this by comparing millions of enzymes cataloged in research databases and tested the top candidates in the lab. And so the team used knowledge from synthetic biology, along with a computational protein design tool, to create an enzyme capable of converting the anthocyanin molecules with a high degree of efficiency. But as noted, this was a rather complicated job because they had to sift through all the potential protein sequences in order to find the right one. We used these tools to search for the search the universe for the enzyme we're interested in. Justin Siegel, a co-author of the paper and a professor at the UC Davis Department of Chemistry and Innovative Innovation Food Innovation Institute for Food and Health, said in a press release. Lab tests have shown that the enzyme does its work to convert red anthrocyanins into a useful blue extract called P2AL complex, or P2. The researchers used the new dyes in a sample of ice cream, icing for donuts, and sugar-coated lentils. In tests, it was also able to combine with other compounds to create vivid green food coloring. And importantly, Stability of this novel colorant in these product applications is excellent as well, with no notable color decay over a 30-day period when stored in ambient conditions, wrote the authors of the study. Now, of course, there is one hitch so far. It hasn't yet been confirmed to be food safe. However, co-author Kumi Yoshida from Nagoya University told New Scientist that red cabbage anthocyanins have a long, long history in our diets. So obviously the next steps are to prove that it's food safe and then to create a large-scale manufacturing process. And voila, the long sought-after natural blue food dye will be a reality. So that's pretty exciting. Um, we know that color is a really important part of, um, of food enjoyment. And so if something is the wrong color, it actually can make your brain not think it's as delicious, even if it's the same altogether as something colored properly. If it's not colored properly, your brain can register it as not as delicious because, all of your senses basically are involved in eating. Your sense of smell, your sense of sight, uh, your sense of texture and this sense of touch in this in the form of texture, um, even the sound of crunching, um, things like that. And so um, you're using pretty much all of your senses when you are eating. And so when any one of those is off, it can be problematic. Okay, so let's move on now and talk about genetics for a while. And so the first story involves environmental DNA. 
We last talked about it in relation to the search for Nessie in in Loch Ness, which yielded an abundance of eel DNA, but nothing to suggest a monster lurks in the depths. eDNA has been used both in water and on terrestrial surfaces, such as the forest floor. But up to now, most airborne DNA experiments were focused on dust or spores. A UK-based team say they have now successfully identified DNA from samples of air in an animal's burrow. The researchers set up an experiment in the lab using naked mole rats that had been living in the lab for over a year. They had set up the animals in a series of tubes and tanks to simulate their natural burrow, their natural burrow habitats. You can actually watch a live stream from the National Zoo of their naked mole rat habitat if you're interested and you want to sort of see what one of these habitats looks like. And so, working at Queen Mary University in London, the researchers basically stuck a hole into the animal's tank and pulled air out of it. The air then passed through a filter used to gather marine eDNA sampling. They were able to analyze the DNA fragments from the filter and immediately identified the mole rat's signature. I tend to think of it a bit like soup, said lead author Elizabeth Clare a molecular ecologist at Queen Mary University. We're in the soup, and it contains dust and pollen and bits of DNA floating around. It's one of those things where you have to keep, where you have to have a leap of faith to even try it. And so this was truly a proof of concept. The research researchers were actually kind of surprised to have gotten such a good result. Because items tend to dissipate fairly quickly in the air, if it's not in an enclosed space, the researchers weren't sure they'd be able to detect anything. And that's why Claire's team started with a species that loves small spaces. But they also tested air in the lab, and they found that they were able to pick up human DNA in the air of the lab, and occasionally also naked mole rat DNA. The first question was pretty risky. Is there DNA in the air? The answer is yes, and we can capture it, Claire said. The next question has to get more risky. Can we do it under more difficult circumstances? And so the next step will be to try it in the field. Claire actually does field work with bats, a great next species to attempt to detect using this new method. Bats like to roost in cavernous spaces or tiny chambers and other places that aren't particularly easy to explore. But if you could simply sneak a hose into a tiny chamber and suck up some air, that would be a pretty darn useful tool. The team is still working on a name. Right now, the contenders are Air DNA or eDNR. They mostly said Air DNA. But it's definitely an exciting new tool to add to our toolbox. But I do want to uh, remember that there is a caveat, which is that this process isn't fast. Uh, The way that we expect to see DNA uh, based on Hollywood's uninformed ideas, the idea that you, you know, set a sample out to uh, be sequenced and it comes back, you know, in the next day, all set. 
um, PCR results from the samples took time to process and required work in the lab. So for instance, this isn't a tool that you'd be able to take out into the field and get instant gratification from. But it also has the potential for tra tracking down evidence of endangered or elusive animals, which is a big uh, yes for this technology. Claire hopes that in the future, though perhaps the far future, Airborne DNA may help create biodiversity maps of chosen areas, basically a catalog of all the animals living in the area. Right now, they suggest the best place to use the technique would be in those small spaces like rodent dens or small caves. In their sampling, which included both air from inside and outside the burrow of the naked mole rats, there was a higher rate of DNA in the samples from inside the burrow versus those in the room at large. And in fact, not all of the samples from the room at large even had naked mole rat DNA in them. And so again, this suggests that dilution might be a problem. They also noted that finding a vacuum that would have both a sufficient flow rate and battery life while being quiet enough not to disturb wildlife is a challenge. These last concerns made me sad because I'm not going to lie, we started with Nessie, and my first thought was that we could use this to definitively solve the question of Bigfoot. I know it's totally silly, but I was recently watching a fun uh, debate slash discussion because they weren't uh, fiercely opponents uh, between two people about the existence of Bigfoot. One of them was a Bigfoot researcher, and the other one was a... Um, primatologist who uh, would love for Bigfoot to be real, obviously, because primatologists would love to find a new species of large ape, especially one that might have higher intelligence and even culture in the way some people describe Bigfoot. Um, but of course, we know that this is unlikely. Uh, and so if we could go out there and find Bigfoot DNA, hey, that would be stupendous. And then we would know that we are dealing with something that really needs to be studied um, and protected. Um, because even though it tends to live in some really wild areas right now, as we know, humans are constantly pushing into wild areas. Um and so if there is Bigfoot, we want to be able to conserve them. Um, obviously, I'm still pretty much 80% on the side of they don't exist, or um, if they once existed, they don't exist anymore. Um, I think that there is still some... Um, question around the Patterson-Gimlin film. Um, you know, the last time I saw it, it had been stabilized so that the, the shaking had been stabilized. And when I looked at that version of it, it really looked to me like a dude in a suit. Um, but obviously, there are elements of the suit that have been argued could not have been created. And there is some, um, you know, some irregularities about the gate 
that suggest that it would not be someone human would not be able to walk that way. Um, and I think these are still open questions. And so I think that a lot of times we kind of poo poo these things, but there are open questions. And I think that scientists, while maintaining a fairly, uh, neutral or, um, even, um, a bit dismissive of a tone towards this should not be completely closed off to it. And I think that um, it's a shame that a lot of them do seem to be because, you know, there have been some weird footprints that have been found. Um, I think Jeff Meldrum um, is a respectable scientist and he has said, um, you know, he's a expert in primate, uh, in primate, um, walking. And so being able to have him say, yes, this looks like it is the, um, you know, footprint of an actual animal that actually is walking in a way that makes sense for a large primate that, you know, that gives me some weight. Um, but of course I also know that there are creationist, uh, geologists and astrophysicists who don't believe that the uh, world is actually, or that the universe, universe is billions of years old, they think it's, you know, 6,000 years old, but they are still able to do good science. And I'm not trying to compare the two directly. I'm just saying that our biases can um, cloud our judgment. And so it may be that he really wants there to be Bigfoot and therefore he sees signs of Bigfoot that aren't necessarily there. But I still think it's an open question. Um, and I, again, would love for there to be Bigfoot. I think that is the cryptid that I would most like to have be real. Um, I'm not at all convinced it is, but it is definitely the cryptid that would be the most awesome to be able to confirm is actually out there and is actually able to be picked up um, by something like air DNA. Um, so yeah, I mean, they do use it on the forest floor. And so maybe someone could do that, um, try and pick up some DNA residue from those footprints that people find, um, that might be another, um, that might be another way to work on it, but we need people who want to do that. And that's another big problem. Um, okay. I'm going to stop waxing philosophically about Bigfoot. Um, and we're actually going to take a break and we will be back in just a few minutes. Uh, so we're going to do some show promos and some PSAs. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. 
Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a CD or tape player. Each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. We are back, and you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio, and we are going to continue to talk about genetics, but we are going to move on from uh, air DNA, and we're going to talk about a specific animal. And so we are going to be talking about the adorable Mexican axolotl. Now, in case you've been living under a rock and haven't heard of these adorable salamanders, they have a really cool superpower. They've also cheated becoming adults. Instead of becoming an amphibian like other salamanders, they stay in the water and basically continue in the larval phase for their entire life. Weirdly, researchers a century ago found that if you fed thyroid tissue to axolotls, some of them would begin to become adults, so to speak. They would lose their feathery gills and their tadpole-like tail fin. Now, the paper notes that the axolotl is an important model organism because it is a tetrapod with a similar body plan to humans. Unlike humans, 
The axolotl regenerates limbs and other complex tissue. Therefore, the axolotl contributes to understanding evolution, development, and regeneration. And that is their superpower. We've been working on the genome of this cute little superhero for a while, with the actual genome having been published back in 2019. But this new paper, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, describes the salamander's genome on the chromosomal scale. Now, a big issue with studying the genome of the axolotl is that it's 10 times larger than that of the human genome. And so the paper is actually authored uh, by many of the people who created the original genome map. We used some techniques that were related to our earlier classical genetic mapping techniques, said co-author Jeremiah Smith, a geneticist at the University of Kentucky. But that allowed us to stitch these million base pairs, base pair things into billion, billion plus base pair scaffolds that represented the length of chromosomes. And so the genome of an axolotl, when stretched out, would be over 30 feet. Compare that to the human's genome at a mere six feet. And it all needs to fit into a cell around the same size, or even smaller than those of humans. It's a pretty impressive feat of efficiency in packing, of efficiency in packing on a microscopic scale. And how the genes fold is important to understanding the initial development of the animal, and also what areas are activated when the animal needs to regenerate a part of their body. And so they helped the mapping um, of the genome by adding fluorescence to different proteins. There are a lot of details involved with regenerating a limb, Smith said. We're not only now thinking about the genome as a linear structure, but also the higher orders of 3D structure that it takes on. And so this is very exciting for learning more about how these animals are able to do the amazing things they are, because, of course, someday we would like to be able to do that ourselves. Um, it's not on the horizon anytime soon, but, you know, lots of things that we take for granted now in medicine would have been thought to be insane or completely undoable a hundred years ago. Um, a lot of the transplants that we do would have been unthinkable 100 or 200 years ago. I keep wanting to say 100, but I feel like we really have to go back further now um, because 100 years ago was already in the 1900s um, where a lot of this stuff had been uh, beginning to be developed. It's a very odd thing um, to think about. But on the other hand, for these guys, there's actually a real problem. While they are abundant in labs and pet shops, because frankly, they are insanely adorable, captive populations suffer from inbreeding and the wild population is under intense pressure. The animal's wild habitat is only in the waters of and surrounding Lake Xocomilco, in Mexico City. And so that's a big problem. 
They're endangered in their native habitat, Smith said. We should be considering that this is a real species that lives in a real habitat. And one of the big things, of course, is that if we lose the wild population, we may just lose the ability to adapt their superpower for our own purposes. I am not above uh, appealing to people's rational self-interest. <laughs> I mean, I would obviously preserve them just because they're ridiculously cute. And why on earth would you want to drive something so adorable into extinction? I mean, obviously, nothing should be driven to to extinction by humans. But um, obviously, again, we have a bias towards the cute things. And axolotls are extremely adorable in my humble opinion. Okay, so we're going to move on from axolotls to dingoes. And so a new genetic analysis of wild canines in Australia suggests that the commonly held view that quote-unquote pure dingoes are basically extinct is wrong. The researchers suggest that it's time to stop calling dingoes wild dogs and to respect that they are indeed a separate and equally adorable species. Research led by conservation biologist Kylie Cairns from the University of New South Wales, in Australia obviously, suggested that the dingo population in Australia is actually quite stable, thank you very much, and that hardly any interbreeding is is occurring between dingoes and feral dogs. A shift in terminology from wild dog to dingo would better reflect the identity of these wild canids and allow more nuanced debate about the balance between conservation and management of dingoes in Australia, they wrote in their new paper published in Australian Mammalogy. Now, word choice is important. Dingoes arrived in Australia over 4,000 years ago and are descended from East Asian domesticated dogs. They have evolved from being members of Canis familiaris into a unique species known as Canis dingo. Because dingoes retain the ability to be any color, though, um, from the typical image of sandy or tan, they can also be black white, patchy, brindled, and black and tan. And so that has often been mistaken to be from interbreeding with feral dogs. And so because we tend to have an idea of what a dingo quote-unquote should look like, I think that that leads to a lot of the confusion. And so the researchers analyzed over 5,000 samples of DNA taken from wild canines from across the con continent, including hundreds of previously unpublished datasets. The work is actually now the largest genetic survey of its kind, and shows clearly that dingo-dog hybridization is not common. Of the DNA analyzed, 99% came from either pure dingoes or dingo-dominated hybrids, where over 50% of the DNA ancestry is dingo. Nearly 65% were pure dingoes with no dog ancestry present, and 20% were dingo-dominated hybrids with at least two-thirds dingo ancestry. Of the 1% non-dingo group, half were dog-dominant hybrids, and half were simply feral dogs. 
We don't have a feral dog problem in Australia, said Cairns in an article from the new, from the university. They just aren't established in the wild. They are rare. There are rare times when a dog might go bush, but it isn't contributing significantly to the dingo population. As for the small amount of hybridization, most of that occurs in southeast Australia, unsurprisingly in areas close to large cities. Brad Nesbitt, an adjunct research fellow at the University of New England and a co-author of the study, said that there's an urgent need to stop using the term wild dog and go back to calling them dingoes. And this is because Australia does have a huge issue with invasive species, and so this has been used to malign dingoes as feral dogs and thus as nuisance animals, which can and should be killed. The term is even used by the Australian government, which has used lethal population control measures on the animals, dropping bait laced with sodium fluoroacetate, which is a pesticide, into forests. The researchers suggest that this kind of measure should be avoided, especially in national parks and especially during dingo breeding season in order to actually protect them from further hybridization as disruptions to packs are more likely to drive hybridization. And so dingoes are a native animal and they have cultural significance and so should be protected. They're listed as threatened in Victoria, but not in New South Wales and in many other states. And they are a part of an important ecological niche that it's important to maintain. They are apex predators who suppress large populations of herbivores, such as kangaroos, who can overgraze doing damage to soil and ruin land conservation efforts. Because, of course, Australia is largely desert as well. And so, um, much like with goats and uh, expanding slightly the area of uh, the Sahara Desert on occasion, uh, kangaroos can do much the same and they can actually ruin land conservation efforts. And they actually also help with a real feral animal crisis in Australia, that of feral cats. Feral cats are indeed an invasive and absolute nuisance species. And if dingoes are taking out feral cats, as much as I love cats, then we need more dingoes uh, roaming around and getting those cats because those cats are really just fundamentally disrupting the ecosystem of um, Australia. So hopefully this new research will really pin down the fact that these animals are in need of protection and are actually an important native species, not a nuisance or invasive species. Let's hope, because again, they're also adorable and I am all for saving everything, but I think that the adorable species are easier cells, and so it's sometimes good when they're adorable because it's easier to convince people to save an adorable species. Um, and so that at least they've got going for them. Okay, so we've been talking about the genetic the genetics of specific animals that are all 
relatively speaking, fairly close to humans. But what about our most distant cousins? What is the animal that is the furthest away from us, genetically speaking, while still being classed as animalia? Researchers have debated whether this honor should go to sponges or comb jellies. A new study suggests that sponges, which we've just talked about recently, hold the title for the most distant relatives. Publishing in the journal Nature Communications, a team of scientists compared the genetics of sponges and comb jellies and concluded that the sponges are more unique and were the first organisms to branch off from the mammalian tree of life. Sponges don't have muscles, nervous systems, organs, or even the mouth-to-anus digestive tract, which is common to all other members of the animal kingdom. They feature only the most basic aspects of animalia, multiple cells, sperm production, a lack of cell walls, and the need to eat for energy. Comb jellies, on the other hand, have muscles, simple anuses, and nerves, despite otherwise being basically completely alien-looking, and they are thus a bit higher or further down the evolutionary tree. This is a bit of a curveball for some evolution evolutionists, because if comb jellies had diverged first, this would suggest that organisms ev- evolved both nerves and anuses more than once, which might mean that there is an evolutionary pressure associated with these sorts of features specifically. But if sponges are the earliest form, then these traits need to have only developed once. Instead of comb jellies, our improved analyses point to sponges as our most distant animal relatives, restoring the traditional, simpler hypothesis of animal evolution, lead author and Trinity University microbiologist Anthony Redmond said in a statement. Now, the Trinity team looked not just at a few genes, which were highly divergent in comb jellies, but also at the mechanisms of evolution in the genome itself. They looked at the genetic changes to the genome, where different mutations swamped, swapped either an amino acid that is similar to another, and which has roughly the same properties, versus those that switch the amino acid to be something that does not act the same way and thus could change the function of the protein it's associated with. Those second mutations stick around with much less frequency than the first kind because often they're detrimental and evolution favors uh, beneficial mutations and not detrimental mutations. And so they reason that those kinds of mutations represent not a single generation of separation, but an order of magnitude of separation. Using this rubric, the sponges seem to be a more basal form, and this suggests that nerves, anuses, and other features likely evolved only once, as had been traditionally thought. Now, sometimes traits do develop independently, think birds and bats, but in this case, animals have had these features since almost the beginning of their development. And so that is, I mean, it's not a hugely uh, 
devastating blow. Um, I think it's fairly reasonable to suggest that once something develops and works, it continues to be um, propagated down the line. That's how evolution tends to work. Um, it definitely has a, if it's not broke, don't fix it kind of mentality, um, wherein you, that's how you get some odd things. Um, like in the giraffe, they have that nerve that goes all the way up into their, uh, throat and all the way back down, um, through the, through their long necks because it needs to go around something that is traditionally in that part of the throat. Now, if evolution was working harder at really refining things, it would have completely bypassed the neck and that nerve would go from the one part of the chest cavity to the other part of the chest cavity, skipping the uh, neck entirely. But because giraffes are a mammal and that's how mammals work, evolution just kept it that way because it's a nerve and so it can work super long. Um, and so it's definitely a um, result, but I don't think it's necessarily going to overturn a lot of research that has been done in previous times. All right, let's shift gears now and talk about culture. And so between 125,000 years ago and 70,000 years ago, people in what is now the Kalahari Desert began to create a complex culture. Examination of tufa deposits at the site suggests that at the time of occupation, the area would have actually featured waterfalls rather than the harsh, the harsh desert conditions of today, which is, you know, how they could survive there. Because if you think of the Kalahari today, um, it's pretty harsh desert. Now, previously, the development of complex culture had been confined to the coastline of southern Africa, where the inhabitants would have had access to the ocean, and this had been suggested to be the catalyst for the development of complex ideas and innovations. And in fact, six of the twelve co-authors of the new paper met each other and first worked together at coastal sites in South Africa. But now... This idea will have to be re-examined. Griffith University, Australia, archaeologist Jane Wilkins and her colleagues have found a landlocked site that seems to have the same signs of cultural development, including collecting small objects for no practical reason, using pigments for decorative purposes, and storing water, and possibly even food, as well in specific containers. The team, including Wilkins, Ben Chauville of the University of Queensland, Australia, and Kyle Brown of the University of Cape Town, South Africa, first started exploring the area of southern Kalahari in 2014 via the North of Kuraman Paleoarchaeology Project. At Ga Mohana Hill, North Rock Shelter, the team found not only stone tools, but also a large chunk of red ochre, worn flat and striated on two sides, suggesting it had been used as a pigment, 
and they also found a cache of translucent white calcite crystals, which could not have originated at the cave site itself. Uh, the nearest current natural source is over a mile and a half away, and the crystals had not been worked or used as tools, which suggests that they were collected either for their beauty or as a specific offering. And finally, pieces of burned ostrich egg were found, which suggests they may have been used to carry or store water. The items found in the Kalahari are dated using optically stimulated luminescence dating, which measures when quartz grains in the sediment were last exposed to light, to around 105,000 years ago which is similar to that of sites along the coast, where caches of seashells and the oldest known ostrich eggshell containers have been found at the Dipkloof Rock Shelter in South Africa. Containers were a crucial innovation for early humans, notes Wilkins. The new find is important to shift our understanding of how human culture developed. It turns out that the coastline hypothesis has been driven more by geology than actual reality. Stratified late Pleistocene sites with good preservation and robust chronologies are rare in the interior of, South, of Southern Africa, they wrote in their recent paper. The result is... The result is what they describe as a, quote, strong bias towards coastal sites that marginalizes the role of inland populations, which in their words has always been problematic. Now, the finds tell us that different populations were coming up with similar solutions and similar interests at the same time in different geographical areas, which is very interesting and will require a new hypothesis for the development of these traits, which is always good. We don't want to have a hypothesis that is based on evidence that just happens to have been preserved rather than based on evidence from all of the original places where the habits developed. And as someone who loves collecting shiny rocks, it makes me feel connected to these early humans who were just starting to develop the kind of complex culture that today we take for granted. Now, another really cool aspect of the work is that the team actively worked to bring in voices from the local community and Native African scholars to collaborate. These included Sesheba Maape of the University of Witwatersrand, in South Africa, who is actually from Kuruman, near Gamahana Hill, and whose research focus, focuses on the ritual use of natural spaces, including at Gamahana and other nearby sites. At first, Maape was actually rather hostile to their intentions, but they were able to work together and improve the practices used in the area to minimize interference with local community with local community use, including backfilling the site after each season to leave no visible trace of the dig. Such collaborations are important, especially in an area like this that has been scarred by colonialism and is still trying to defend its cultural patrimony from colonial interference. And the collaboration also favored the researchers, as conversations with Ma'ape about current ritual practices at by locals at the site 
helped lead the researchers to further investigate those crystals as a potential offering or cash. And so another thing that is really important here is just doing this sort of outreach. It is so important to be able to outreach to the people who live in the local area and to be able to have these kinds of connections, especially in Africa, where, you know, Europeans coming in and doing things has a long history of not going well for Native populations. And so I think it's so important that they really worked hard on, um, as they said, their little piece of decolonial, decolonizing, um, science. And so that is very cool. And I think that's a good place to stop for tonight. I hope you all have a good week. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy. Hey, this is Morlock, and if you want to hear some of the best in BGM and Nerdcore, I got you covered. On Press Start to Continue, you can hear an eclectic two-hour mix of geek music. We've got covers of classic game themes in any number of genres, theme shows, interviews, and so much more. Visit StartToContinue.com to learn more, or just search for Press Start to Continue DLC on your favorite podcast app. Press Start to Continue, nerdy music for the masses. Press Start to Continue. A member of the Planetside Podcast Network.